This is the Zero Downside Podcast brought to you by MoabTexas.com. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another podcast episode with the Zero Downside. And today I still have Mike Mitchell and Dr. Wade McKenna. Today we're going to dive into the topic of bone marrow aspirate concentrate and how Dr. Wayman can actually develop an easy way to get to it and use it in our practice. And I am excited to hear more about it and share it with everyone too. I love that we just had Hannah use the marketing girl, right? She's a business person. (laughs) Use the appropriate science term bone marrow aspirate Aspirate concentrate concentrate. i I love that because we work really hard in our clinic to not just call stuff stem cells because i hate that um but because technically while the stem cells are in bone marrow so are all the growth factors Mm -hmm. you know you're spinning down a a platelet rich Mm -hmm. um concentrate from the patient's bone marrow but that's where the stem cells are right and so you're concentrating the stem cells from your bone marrow to give you an autologous stem cell solution but that's really the difference is technically in our clinic, we call it BMAC, mm-hmm. right? All my notes, BMAC. On the because quote you get, the, see BMA. Everything. It's, <laughs> it's BMA because bone marrow aspirate concentrate is the most scientifically appropriate term to describe that graft. Mm-hmm. And we try to use... Can I get a high five for that? Yeah, there we go. Awesome. I'm very proud. <laughs> uh, we, know we, 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 we really try hard to make sure that scientifically we're not using junk terms because it's popular socially Mm -hmm. that we're trying to stay scientifically accurate and specific Mm -hmm. and and maintaining a scientifically accurate and specific conversation when you're competing with people that are calling everything stem cells and we're injecting stem cells everywhere stem like wow it's it's way more difficult my favorite i'm gonna start this because i want to give a shout out to my grandma on this one I'll never forget, and, my, and probably if you've seen me as a patient, you've already heard this story, because I'll never forget that I was probably, I don't know, young, 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 and um, eight, seven, probably I was less than my daughter's age now. So Tess is who who I talked to before I ever show because she tells me to what my what my talking points need to be because um, <laughs> she's had to listen to all this, right? Um, so my. Well, my older daughters went through generation one on the catheter and all the drawings and all that. So Megan and Milan lived through the catheter, the development of the centrifuge stuff, and the, the original techniques. Tess has lived through, because she's 10, the development of the clinic, the delivery model, right? The science behind the, the aesthetic stuff that we do, mm-hmm. which didn't exist when we we're first using marrow mm-hmm. for trauma patients. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but I sat in my grandmother's lap on a swing. And she's rubbing my hair and she says, sweetie, baby, I hate this for you. But if there's two ways to do something, she goes, and you're just too smart. She goes, you're just too smart for your own britches. And there's going to be a lot of things thrown at you in your life where there's going to be a temptation to take the easy way. And she goes, and, I, and, and she goes, I want to tell you something. And it's a damn shame. She goes, it really is. But there's two ways to do something. A lot of times, one way is going to be really hard and take a lot of time and effort. And the other way is going to seem like it's such a nice shortcut and so easy. And she goes, and I hate this for you, but almost always the right thing is the hard way. Mm-hmm. And she goes, and I hate that because you're going to have lots of opportunities with your brain to take a lot of different shortcuts in life. Shortcuts never end up well. Yeah. And she goes, and I hate it for you, but the hard way of doing something is almost always the right way. That all goes to say that we work really hard 
on doing it the right way, even if it takes more effort. It's mm-hmm. a lot easier to say stem cell than it is to talk about bone marrow aspirate concentrate. Mm-hmm. And then you have to talk about the technology behind getting that. And what's yeah. the difference between raw bone marrow? Like there's still guys out there drawing bone marrow and just using raw bone marrow. I, bone marrow is 97% whole blood. If you're not doing anything to concentrate it. Now we can't manipulate cell count. The FDA is against anything more than m- minimal manipulation of the tissue. Mm-hmm. But it does allow us to concentrate it and make it better and get the components of the separation of that out mm-hmm. to give you a better tailored result, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't inject 60 cc's of marrow somewhere. So you want just the good part of it mm-hmm. to put where the target is, right? The part that initiates the sentinel cell, the cell that provokes the healing, mm-hmm. the cell that communicates with the rest of you and put it where it goes. Right. We, we work really hard to use very specific terms. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about PRP as a stem cell. We don't talk about stem cells, from your stem cells. We, we'll from your we'll own say body. that when we're talking to people for a while <laughs> because we're trying to give them that. But that's basically what it is. And that's what bone marrow aspirate concentrate. But in our clinic, we, we work really hard to maintain the very specific terminology on that. But it comes because of my background in the initiation and of, of the science of using marrow in medicine at all, right? I'm old. Um, wow. The, <laughs> well, it's just, well, we're going to use well, the wasn't even, well, let's look, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't even a mesenchymal stem cell till 1995. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Till Arnie Kaplan called it a mesenchymal stem cell. It wasn't a stem cell. So we're not talking about science that goes back to the, ba- like Hippocrates did not describe the stem cell. Mm-hmm. He described a lot of cool stuff in medicine, but the science behind the biologics and the under- that's why when, one of the things that drive me crazy, and I realized this last week is that anatomy and physiology, the science of the analysis of biologics has been on a quantum path of doubling for the last 20 years. People that that base what they're doing on their previous understanding of anatomy and physiology are not likely to be specific and correct about the their their treatment for their old knowledge base. The knowledge base of what we do in medicine needs to have advanced to the point where you understand what a cell secretes, how cells communicate, and what growth factors are, and what an exosome is, and the different types of stem cells, and the CD markers on different stem cells, and the fact that a hemopoietic stem cell is not wasted there are a lot of terms in medicine that have changed dramatically over the last few years that if you don't understand modern physiology, you don't really get the use of the biologics because we weren't taught that in med school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cellular immunity, immune responses, um, what we were taught in med school never involved the stem cell. And since the stem cell mediates immunity, we probably, while we learned the basis of, by the limited understanding we had at the time, we ser- if your function, if your treatments are all based on that old knowledge base, what's the likelihood you're right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, the, the, the lungs in a human, as, as we get older, become hemopoietic. Like we're not taught that the lungs make blood. If you look in a medical textbook and, and it says, the, you know, your blood's made from the, the reason we draw marrow from where it would come from is because that's where the marrow comes from. That's where the blood's made. 
the lungs what is actually produced the, there. The right? lungs, pulmonary parenchyma, yeah. becomes hemopoietic as you get older. So when someone gets IV cells and they get stuck up in the pulmonary parenchyma, we used to think that was a really bad thing. That's one of the big clinics out of the country based their their dosage on how much were they getting because the pulmonary getting hung up in the pulmonary parenchyma might have been bad. That was our thoughts ten years ago. Right. Now we know that those cells getting hung up at the pulmonary parenchyma is probably one of the mechanisms of action because all your blood goes through your lungs a lot. And that cell being triggered in the pulmonary parenchyma, seeing the diseased blood come back, because like if you have heart failure, you don't have to get the cells to the heart. The cells have to get what they secrete to your heart, mm -hmm. right? So them getting hung up at the pulmonary parenchyma is probably the one of the therapeutic ways that they work. Now, if we're trying to use a local area of your body and we're not just talking about systemic failure or immune mm -hmm. autoimmune dysfunction, oh, then we want to put the cells where they go. Mm -hmm. Would 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 a bunch of IV cells maybe make a difference in your ankle pain? Sure. If you have a big systemic overload of inflammatory load and we can take care of some of your lupus or RA, and mm -hmm. if the if that's what they're doing, you know, with with when you're doing a systemic treatment for someone. But is that the best, most efficacious, least expensive, most tailored way to treat your ankle pain? No, it would be to address what, what, where in your ankle did you hurt? What ligaments did you tear? How much motion do you have? How much swelling do you have? And let's find out what's the most efficacious way to get that tissue to respond and heal. We got to get rid of your edema. We have to lower the inflammatory load. What's the best way of doing that? What's the best graft to do that? What's the other peptides? You know, the stem cell secretes, and we haven't even talked about this. The stem cell secretes thousands and thousands of peptides and proteins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The exosome, which everyone now is, that's another word I'm beginning Equal to hate. Stem cells, I really exosomes. loved that word in the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah. Loved the word exosome in the beginning because it was a way billion, of getting rid of the billion. 25 other terms I used to use yeah. to describe what a stem cell secretes. Yeah. <laughs> Vesicles of support, growth factors, the secretome. All these words we've used to talk about what a stem cell secretes, it's an exosome, right? Now, an exosome, the definition, the problem, and my nurse hates this, right? So Ashley. Shout out uh, Ashley. Our, our nurse, yeah. So who's, <laughs> who's almost everyone that has had some. One day we will get her in we here. We will have to have One her day in. we will. Absolutely. <laughs> Ashley is very much a no gray person. Yeah. She hates. White or black. She hates leeway for things. Yeah. And, and so if Ashley was having to define what an exosome is. She would take a, she, there would be death, there would be blood in the streets. Because, <laughs> because, because the definition of exosome in, in real life is between about 0.35 nanometers in sporicity mm -hmm. to about 1.4 nanometers in sporicity. And it's, it's messenger RNA and growth factors and peptides and proteins secreted by the stem cell in packaged and fats. Lyophilized peptide protein or matrix of this amount of sporosity, that's an exosome. Now, how are exosomes defined by other clinics? Mm. Pieces and parts of spears <laughs> sometimes, yes. and certainly they've widened the margin. The way someone could say we have billions of exosomes yeah. is they're taking their exosomal measurements. Some of these clinics take it all the way up to 2.4 nanometers in sporicity. Uh -huh. Are there some of those that are exosomes? Sure. If you take that down to less than 1.6, less than 1.4, is it a way higher percentage of those things that you measure that are exosomes? Yes. But if you want to cheat towards your side, just increase the definition of it, right? Mm -hmm. And because there's no one set except, it's like with PRP. Mm -hmm. The real definition of PRP is five times the growth factors of whole blood. 
Is that the way most people describe PRP? No. Not at all. So when we talk about stem cells, exosomes, then we're back to that. We use very specific terminology based on science to decide how to treat patients, right? I would argue that a lot of the definitions we have come from just, just word of mouth, things that we've seen and heard, you know, and, and location, you know, PRP, where are you going to draw the PRP from? BMA or BMAC, where are you going to draw that from? And there's a lot of terminology out there. So let, let's go back to that, right? We've talked about the history. We've talked about those with more life experience than others, not people, right? We're going to be polite. Say yeah. some people just have more practice at life than others, <laughs> right? Um, I do want to touch base on a couple things, right? Well, let's go back to the beginning microfractures right yeah. that that moment where you poke a hole in the cartilage of the knee and you see bubbles come out right moving into prp adipose tissue versus bone the harvest itself you know walk me through the timeline right from the first doctor that thought microfracture is the clear way to treat a professional athlete or the 80 year old patient in his office because they came in with knee pain right yeah so so what we know now is that microfracture does not generate hyaline cartilage. What we thought for a while, and the way there's a clinic in Colorado that got really famous for treating knees, was based on a microfracture because they published that there was cartilage, that it grew cartilage. Right. So the technique for microfracture was you put these, you, you drill out all the cartilage in that area that's, that's, that, that doesn't look great. And then you poke these giant holes in the bone and when a little bit of bone marrow, these little fat droplets come from, while you're looking at it through the scope, while these fat droplets leak into the knee, that that bone marrow is magic. That's the whole reason for a microfracture. The entire reason for microfracture surgery is to stimulate the bone so that marrow secretions initiate the healing. So the entire microfracture, the reason you're destroying a joint yeah. is to try to get the cartilage to heal better because if you can activate the subchondral surface, and the little bone marrow leaks into the joint, it's magic and it can help that cartilage grow and heal. Now, my thought as a intern, student, resident, and then fellow, is you're watching and going to this much trouble and destroying the cartilage of someone's knee, drilling out large segmental defects. Sounds defense. painful. Like I just have a disgust look on my face we, right now. We make people non-weight bearing for a month yeah. or two months. We, we would brace them initially and they swell forever. And then a lot of times because you've done such an aggressive chondroplasty mm -hmm. and you've drilled all these holes in bone, the bone doesn't always heal. So we, we talk a little bit about avascular necrosis. Guess what? So the, what generated that little bit of marrow or microfracture surgery generates a non-hyaline. So the cartilage that it generates is more fibrocartilage. And so it's these big, disorganized, big, wet cells. So it looks good on, on, on MRI a little bit. And it, and it can handle impact forces. It can't hand, handle torsional stress. Mm -hmm. So it's not rebuilding someone's joint, right? So when you do a microfracture on someone, you're doing all this for a couple drops of marrow into the knee. My thought very early on was, if the magic of this is the marrow, and we're hoping for a couple drops from the <laughs> condylar surface, which is not known as the best marrow in the world. The best marrow in the world is not your distal femur. We know that now specifically because we've done draws all over the body and validated where the best marrow would be as far as stem cell count. It's not the distal femur, right? But we're, we're going to all this work, doing a big surgery on someone, a couple drops of marrow on the knee. We're like, yes, we did a great microfracture surgery. All this car is going to grow back. Little teardrops that, of... That, yeah, <laughs> that does, so my thought was, wow, if, what if we could harvest 60 cc's of that 
from where it would be better, so the pelvis. And then I could concentrate it down to recreate the physiologic volume. So everyone that's walking around is somewhere between five, seven cc's of fluid on their knee when it's non-diseased. What we would want to do is recreate the physiologic volume of the knee mm -hmm. with a healthier substrate. We want to treat the micro environment mm -hmm. so that cartilage can heal and grow, mm -hmm. pain can go away, mm -hmm. inflammation can be resolved, subchondral bone can get healthy, meniscal tissue can heal, Trigger and synovitis can go away. Mm -hmm. Right. That sounds like a really, really good goal. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the answer? You microfracture mentioned... doesn't do that. Well, right? a couple drops of microfracture. Har if I harvest marrow from you, concentrate all that down. Right. And now I stick that in your knee. Did I have to go way backwards to stand a chance of going a little bit forward? No. The body gets a chance to take care of the inflammation the way it wants to. It wants a lot more cells in the knee to help it. It's just the knee's not kind of on the priority list a lot of times, right? So what happens is if we concentrate it, put it where it goes, you see true chondral defects and mm -hmm. true chondral healing. Is that going to cure everything? No. Is it your body's best chance at standing, at having any hope of generating articular joint space? Yes. If you're going to heal cartilage, if you're going to have more cartilage after a knee scope, you have to have bone marrow on the knee. And that's been published for a really long time. There's a study, it's like in 08, where, where they did like 500 patients with arthroscopy, half of them with marrow, half of them without. They do total cartilaginous volume of the knee the day after the scope and then repeat it at six months. At six months, none of the knees that didn't have marrow had more cartilage in them, on average 10% less because they were putting steroids and local on the knee and because of the manipulable stimulation of the knee and then wear after that. In, in the knees that had marrow put in the knee, on average, there's over 20% more cartilage in the joint. Hmm. So day after the scope, go out six months. If you had marrow put in your joint, they all had a little, they, none of them had less, right? So I was all disappointed because what I wanted of that study is I want the, the amount of cartilage in your knee to be directly proportional. So I wanted like an inverse graph. Like if you have 50% more cartilage, you have 50% less pain. That's not what happened. What happened is the pain score drops at about seven to 11%. People continue to get up around that 24% plateau but now looking back at that data, what I know now is you don't have to have all the cartilage in the world to not hurt. You just need a little bit more than when you started hurting. The articular cartilage in the joint is not the amount of it directly related to pain and wear. It protects the subchondral bone from beginning to collapse. It's like keep the foundation from, from collapsing, right? So just even the smallest just improvement. Just a little bit makes a big difference. And on. really, if you just lower the inflammatory load of the knee so it's not destroying everything. Right. Mm. Most people still don't even understand. They talk about medial and lateral meniscus as completely separate entities, even orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. Well, my tear is medial, so I don't have any pain laterally. Did it? Okay. That, it's a big gasket, right? So the medial and lateral meniscus are intimately involved because as you rotate on one, there's a screw home mechanism with the knee. Whereas you rotate on one, the medial meniscus has to tighten and engage, but the lateral meniscus has to relax and let that happen. So it's the meniscal unit of a knee mm -hmm. that's joint line pain not weight-bearing surface pain, not subchondral bony edema, not subchondral pain, not a lot of swelling pain. It's locking, catching, instability. It's a positive McMurray's exam, right? You put your finger there, you twist the knee in the right way. If it causes pain to click and pop, they probably have a meniscus tear. Hmm. That, the guy that published that, Dr. McMurray, um, was just as specific at diagnosing tears as MRI. It wasn't, it was just as sensitive, excuse me. So his sensitivity on diagnosing meniscus tear is just as good as MRI on physical exam. 
The problem is the specificity, the location of the tear, he couldn't figure out. Because a lateral tear and a medial tear on physical exam can feel the same. You can tell if the meniscus is functional, but you can't tell which side was torn. And I always thought that was a down step of, well, McMurray's just isn't that great a test. No, because the sensitivity of, is this a tear, is based on those symptoms of meniscal integrity. So McMurray's exam isn't to tell if you have a medial tear or lateral tear. It's to tell you if you have dysfunction of the meniscal unit, right? An MRI gives you your targets for a scope. The physical exam decides what's causing your pain, right? A standing film. We use this, we tell people all the time, and I, we need to do this one day. We need to bring standing films and show people go, this is what bone on bone arthritis really looks like. So, what are you looking for in the standing film? Joint space, subchondral health. Okay. Um, the, the, so, cartilage doesn't show up, articular cartilage, meniscal cartilage doesn't show up on a standing film. So, if you see space, you make the decide on a, on a weight bearing film, which standing films, the old guys got this right way before there was MRI, a lot. Not all the time. But a weight bearing film means a lot, right? It's data. So for me, if there's subchondral collapse on a weight bearing film and there's no joint space, I, I know, and that patient doesn't have locking, catching, giving way, I know their pain is coming from arthritis and loss of articular cartilage. So my goal becomes how do I make the articular cartilage healthy? How do I protect the subchondral bone? If that standing film looks great and they're having an exorbitant amount of pain, I know it's not arthritis, right? It could be the inflammatory phases of arthritis, so synovitis or capsular pain or inflammatory disease or synovial plicas or, but, but most likely if they have mechanical symptoms, it's meniscal or osteochondral loose bodies or symptomatic instabilities, ligamentous. There's plenty of things we still need the more traditional part of me for. I mean, I'm, I'm a fellowship trained trauma surgeon, right? I, most of what we do from a surgical perspective is what I was really trained to do. Right. Like no one wants to think, and, and I use this analogy all the time because and I, and you're going to probably hear this more than once, is that I gave, I didn't become an orthopedic trauma surgeon. I didn't finish my trauma fellowship until I was 34. I never took a year off. So 10 years from now, if you were me, you'd just be entering the job market. You would have been broke the whole time, right? May explain a lot. Yeah, right. So, so, <laughs> so at 34, right, is the first time I have a real job. Now, do I want to look back and say that everything I've spent my 20s and half my 30s on doesn't mean anything? No. The, you almost have to approach it like a religion. Like you gave up so much for this training. It has to become that important to you or it's not a ra that's the rationalization for why I gave it up is because it was so important. Hopefully that rationalization holds up and you get to be happy. Um, but for the most part, there are times where you still need that side of me, right? Like yeah. I, I can't reconstruct your ACL if you have symptomatic instability with cells. Mm -hmm. Now, the use of cells can make it where your ACL reconstruction works. The failure rate of ACL reconstruction drops almost zero and the healing time drops less than in half on patients that have bone marrow aspirin concentrate injected the ACL graft at the time of their surgery compared to people that don't. That's really well published. Um, but for the most part, this traditional part of me, that surgical part, mm -hmm. there's a lot less people that need to be put into the cookie cutter flow chart of surgery than we think. And that standing film for me is one of those things. Cause you walk in and someone's bone on bone on one side, I go, oh, Mrs. Jones, boy, that, that medial side looks terrible. Your left knee looks bad. And the patient will be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. My left knee doesn't hurt. 
So right. if you've got an MRI and you've got all your data on the patient, they come in, they've got an MRI done, whether it was one that was ordered through our clinic or, or not, um, would you still order a standing film, a weight-bearing film, and, and why? A lot you of know, times. What, what are you going to see on a weight-bearing film as far as the spacing on both sides of the knee versus an MRI? It gives me a way better view of a dynamic in, image, right? So for when you have an MRI, you're laying down, right? And so you can kind of fake a joint space sometimes, mm -hmm. right? Um, there are times where most MRIs are over read because they show little signal changes that really aren't clinically important. But a lot of MRIs, especially when it comes to chondral changes or reasons to discover why you're hurting, right? An MRI may not tell you why you're hurting. An MRI gives you a lot of, of pictures of degenerative changes and wear, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily tell you why you're hurt. And a standing film can help me at another data point to trying to give you a specific diagnosis and figure out what's the best treatment for it. Sometimes the best treatment for it is a total knee. Like, yeah. I mean, look, I designed the instrumentation for the knee that we used to put, the, the knee that we put in. Um, it, but, but I designed the instrumentation for that like in 08. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I, and I think total knee is important. I mean, total knee is the reason I became an orthopedic surgeon. Someday we'll have to tell a story, but, but I just remember thinking at 14 years old, oh my God, that changed this person's life. That's really important to me. I want to be able to do that someday. Like if everyone has to work to make a living, what a great way to make a living. And, and so for me, that was crucial. Now, do I feel that same way that total knee arthroplasty is still one of those really first line options for people? No, right? I don't think it's a first line option. Our, our requirements for a total knee is it hurts all the time. It keeps you awake at night and nothing else helps. And you're taking narcotics, right? We have a really cool process now to where, you know, the problem with stem cells is it takes three to six months for you to be at the best you're going to get from that injection. Like you're going to, the chondrogenesis really kind of begins at around week six. Most of the good part of healing happens between about week six, eight, all the way up to about week 16 to 20. Kind of what you have at about six months is what you have. Yeah. Right. From as far as cartilage growth from that shot. And people will say, yeah, but I continue to get better for years. Yeah, it's because we lowered the inflammatory load. We gave you a little bit more cartilage and you got in better shape and you have more You're muscle moving. mass and you have more range of motion. <laughs> You're, You're moving. Out. <laughs> yeah. That's why We're you continue to get better, right? Yeah. But the cell part at around six months, you're not continuing. That's your magic mark. That yeah, you you're, you're kind of not getting. Can lot. we circle back real quick before we start to lose our time on yeah. here? I would love for you to give a like visual description of the bone marrow aspirate concentrate, like catheter, and how it's way less damageable yeah, so, then so, so so we have it right here we have it right here but those who can't see us on camera yeah, give so, your best description so, so i think the description is so i was an oil field brat growing up in the middle <laughs> of oklahoma you were uh, yeah, yeah um the i i spent a lot of time on mud digging pits throwing chain like there was the only real country job, town doctor the only country kid like yeah i mean it's the only way to make a real money uh during the summers mm -hmm. as a big kid that wasn't afraid. Um, and so working for a ton trucks and mud services, like, but, but the process of fracking, right? So you're putting mm -hmm. this, you, you put multiple holes in a tube so that you get flow back of fluid. So yeah. for marrow, what we wanted to do is create a system that liberates as much marrow as you can through a small amount of trauma as possible. And so the physics, of fluid flow and mm -hmm. the dynamics of low turbidity are what made me create the catheter. Because when you go to 
harvest marrow in a traumatic fashion, you get a lot of clotting. The cells go to the clot. And if you cause too much trauma at the time, when you do your cell counts, there's not a lot of cells in that. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot of people out there that, oh, you know, after 80, there's no stem cells in your marrow anyway. That, that's not, they certainly can make that true. You can make it where there's almost no cells in, in a healthy marrow draw if you do it Depending wrong. Depending on how you draw right. it. Yeah. yeah. If you do it in a low turbid way. I mean, think of it this way. And people ask this all the time. And, and, and it's like, I mean, there are some things we do. When we talk about knee pain, like coolie, it's like an ablation therapy on the on the on the nerves of a knee is almost like a party trick. Yeah. Like people stand up and walk out of the room and like, oh my god, my knee doesn't hurt anymore. Mm -hmm. The the marrow aspect draw kind of feels like a party trick to me too, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're drawing sixty cc's from a space that holds ten or twelve. Mm -hmm. Like, why am I drawing sixty cc's? From it, and first of all, how? How do you right. draw like more? Like it's like having a hundred dollars in your bank account and going and drawing five thousand. Like that's not possible. But but it is. It'd be nice. The, it, yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Like but it's I'd, essentially like the fracking. But it's exactly like fracking. That's so what crazy. we're doing is we're causing retrograde blood flow. So when I create a, a decent enough space mm -hmm. and a powerful enough draw, intraosseous, there isn't a lot of trauma. So you don't get a lot of platelet cell activation from in the bone. Mm -hmm. You get it from the outside of the bone. That's where a lot of pain comes from, from a bone marrow harvest is from a subperiosteal hematoma, all mm -hmm. bones covered in the periosteum. If you just poke a little hole in the periosteum, bone doesn't leak underneath it. You don't get a periosteal, subperiosteal hematoma with the catheter. Um, but what we're doing is we're causing blood to flow through the marrow because anyone that's ever seen a picture of bone cracked open, the Kinsella's bone, it looks like Swiss cheese, right? <laughs> yeah. But those cells are encrypted in there and they hide and they don't want to come out. And so when you're, when you're pulling 10 cc's out, that's a lot of the cells are in the first 10 cc's. But the biggest, baddest kid in the class didn't come out like that. Mm -hmm. Like he had to be coaxed and washed out. So when we pull 60 cc's, we're washing all those encrypted cells into my syringe. Because some of the biggest, baddest kids in the class could kind of hang on and try mm -hmm. to stay where they were, right? So we're obtaining a higher volume to get a better cell count. And by then putting it into a centrifuge that concentrates down the cells we want, we're able to deliver a more effective solution with way less trauma than than most Basically, other procedures like to get autologous cells. all of the best yeah, potent we're, we're, cells getting, that are in the bone marrow. Right. And I can do, now can I do down. two draw, can I do a draw from both sides? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. get the cells. But if I just continue to draw marrow, like after 60 cc's, most of it's whole blood. Yeah. Right. So most of the cell, the reason that that draw became 60 cc's is because we used to draw in 10 cc increments or take a cc off, send it to the lab and see where it was. Right. Yeah. So, so what we found out is most of that is in the first 10 to the 30 cc's. Oh, but okay. even in that 50th cc, there's still some of the biggest, baddest kids in the class. And so what you want is anything, anything north of 100 cc's is just whole blood. Yeah. But, but now we can draw on the other side and get about the same cell count as I do on one side. But, but and it takes about three to four weeks and I could redraw from that side and get the same cell count as before. Now, if I draw from that same side 10 years from now, it's going to be lower. Mm -hmm. But if I draw from that same side within the same year, probably about the same cell count. Mm -hmm. So do me a favor. Back before this show, we were in the green room. We, we, we like to kind of 
just float ideas out for shows. We try to keep it organically as possible, but you gave me an analogy of a table and the, the traditional way of getting bone marrow out of a harvest, bone marrow aspirate concentrate out of a harvest was a jam sheety, right? right. Which, which if I could describe it best to anybody that's never seen one, it's literally a metal straw with a spike on the end of it. And it's, it's a giant metal straw used to put to the back of whatever bone you have and you're pulling on it physically with a syringe well but you have to but you have to put it in the bone first yes right? oh. and so there's two ways to get a jam sheet in the bone brutane right oh my gosh <laughs> or a mallet yeah uh-uh that's the oh, only no. two ways yeah. yeah so literally there's a famous picture because it drives me a little crazy when peyton manning flew overseas to have a marrow draw that we developed here uh with a jam sheet in his crest and they have a claw hammer hitting it and it was a picture out of espn no. So the amount so of they trauma Im impact right. a hole in the iliac crest. Now, what happens is you're fracturing that crest in a bad way. And so what happens is all those little holes, the, the, it wasn't uncommon when we put dye in the, in, into this in pig pubs, it wasn't uncommon to see dye four centimeters away from the poke hole because it's the, the bone cracks. So, oh so think of how painful it is if I'm driving a nail through red. So even with this table, if I pound on this table, every drink on a table shakes, right? So if you want to numb up for that draw, how do you numb up the whole table? There's not a way to oh do that. Gosh. So even if I numb up the spot, if I impact a nail through it, which is literally what it is, you're impacting a nail through it and then putting a syringe in harvest. When you do that, it's really, really painful. It sounds that's where the history is <laughs> and it can hurt and that's for months after that because when you leak marrow up underneath the periosteum mm -hmm. it'll show up on mri as a subperiosteal hematoma for almost a year it can take a year for you to get rid of oh that oh my gosh right and yeah my favorite thing is too is always telling patients it's one stitch yeah it's one it's single one stitch hole, right? you can clip it out at home 12 days later yeah it is the and, and most people so when when ash the nurse that that we're gonna have to i know ashley needs to be here um when the nurse takes that stitch out, most people forgot about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. So especially if I do that at the time of a rotator cuff or a knee scope, mm -hmm. because every rotator cuff and knee scope that I've done for the last 15 years, I use Marilyn because it heals better. And right. also clear most this too, because people well, people do ask, like I've, I've had a patient ask before, so is there going to be a permanent hole no. in my, no. <laughs> please explain like, it yeah, just no, for those, I mean, the, just for those who might have that question. Quick, right? So that's, that active bone fills itself in very quickly. And again, because of because I'm very much a historian in, in many subjects, but especially medicine, um, we understand how to not just have you not poke some giant hole in a bone that's going to leak and hurt forever. What we're doing is so I literally mobilize the soft tissue of bone. So if I'm going to drill a hole in my forearm and I just drill it right through that into that bone, that skin is going to be adherent. I'm going to have leakage. I'm going to get a lot of bruised tissue. And, it, and it's gonna, you can get what's called a synovial track. When I go to pull that out of bone, it will literally track and leak through that hole and communicate. So the old guys that would do iron injections in your glute mm -hmm. would take and called a Z-track. They would move the tissue over, then inject the, 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 the iron and then let go. And so now your body kind of forms a fat bandaid to kind of keep it where they put it. Okay. Be because I studied a lot of old techniques what I know is when I go to draw that marrow, I mobilize the soft tissue. I poke my poke hole here. So now the poke hole in your skin and the poke hole in that bone are way apart from each other. Mm -hmm. Because when I let go, now you kind of have a fat tissue band-aid. So you don't get a lot of leakage wow. from that. You don't get a lot of continued bruising. 
And that bone's going to fill in and heal. Bone is one of the only tissues in the human body that heals with the same kind of tissue. Right? You know now, it cannot that. heal. You can get a non-union of a fracture. But when you get a fracture that heals, it's not cartilage, it's not tendon, it's not fat, it's not subcutaneous tissue, it's not vascular, it's bone. Right? So tendon doesn't always heal with tendon. It heals with scar. Some yeah. of the scars in. But subcutaneous tissue may not heal at all. Right? Hair, scar. Right? But bone usually heals with bone. So when I provoke a healing response and now I'm drawing marrow through that, that doesn't leak. You don't get a lot of bruising and we're, we don't draw from that same hole because it heals very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. right? Thank you for clearing that up. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. I think a lot of what you do centers around the thought process and the, the passion and the the intellectual property put into something as simple as a catheter, right? Just the means to if draw it out If it was still really patient. hard to get bone marrow cells, yeah. we would not have this many applications for autologous marrow, right? We're taking right. autologous marrow for people on an elective basis to help them grow hair, to help your skin tighten up, sexual wellness, chronic tendonitis, athletes that'll come after a season just to be tuned up. Both my ankles hurt, both my shoulders hurt. I don't have a tear anywhere, but I'm really inflamed. Like, because marrow is not the most invasive process in the world to get anymore, we made it to where you don't have to have cancer to make a marrow draw worth it. Yeah. If it was still a really morbid process that hurt a lot, it wouldn't be worth getting unless you were really, really sick or really, really hurt or unless everything else didn't work. It'd be like the way I think of a total knee. I think of a total knee is when nothing else helped. That's what I would think of bone marrow for if we didn't make it to where it was so easy to get a good quality graft. So in talking about that, you know, we, we've discussed, hey, this is the microfracture. It was that of the, the condyle in the knee or the tibial plateau in the knee. I've seen bone marrow collected from a heel, right? The calcaneus. I've seen, quote unquote, bone marrow draws. And, and if you're watching on video, this will be fun. Uh, I've seen bone marrow taken from adipose fatty tissue around someone's abdomen, right? I've seen it from everywhere. But you mentioned pelvis, right? You've talked about the hip and the pelvis. Mm -hmm. and, and in the training, in the, the fellowship training as a trauma surgeon, all the these different exposures what makes you want to draw it from that portion of the body right when you okay. mentioned pelvis me as a patient the, i'm thinking yeah, i'd rather you crest. take it from my forearm like right. you showed earlier than my pelvis yeah so here's the good news right um i as a trauma surgeon you become and especially in orthopedics you become the pelvis acetabulum trauma guys because people die right so if someone has a splay pelvis we had the reason you do a fellowship in that and not a lot of regular, not during your regular residency do you do many of these, is you want to put a pelvic frame on. So it means you have these three big pins you put in someone's pelvis and they're 6.5 millimeter pins. Like it's a big screw, right? It's bigger than this pen, right? Mm -hmm. And you're putting that in your crest because I have to put these three big pins in here to put it, to close your pelvis and then put the, a bar across it. So you walk around with the pelvis external fixator. I can put a pelvis external fixator on with my hands, touch, and then verify placement with C-arm because I had to be able to do that to save your life. Because if you have pelvic splay, you're dying, you're bleeding to death. If I close the pelvis, it stops enough of the blood loss where you stand a chance of being resuscitated. So the whole science of between a pelvis external fixator, I knew really well that the anterior pelvis has a really good space that's really safe, that's easy to get to because I put pelvic frames on people as a trauma fellow. So the posterior superior like crest is where most bone marrow harvests are done that hurt forever mm -hmm. because they're going to the one area that most people feel comfortable in because that's all they've been exposed to of drawing marrow. 
in orthopedic trauma, I'm really comfortable with the anterior anatomy of the pelvis. And because I'm putting giant pins and an external fixator on. So putting this in the <laughs> anterior crest compared to three of these on both sides seemed kind of easy. For that, those right? just listening, what is the like full length of this um, thing, you think? The, the, the effective length of the inner diameter of the canister is about a centimeter and a half. Okay. It's yeah. a 15-gauge catheter, basically. But this is not a drill, right? A drill would stimulate mm -hmm. flow back and forth. Mm -hmm. It's a diamond-tipped catheter. So we're placing a hole to place a catheter in its spot that has radialized cuts. You know the, the beer commercial where they talk about the swirl of the turbidity yeah. in the can? That's what this is based on, right? <laughs> is limiting turbidity of flow. And so the reason for the angle of those holes and the reason they're offset is because I had to study a lot of physics of flow yeah. to be able to design that, right? Because I don't want just bone marrow coming from the tip. I want it coming in a low turbid way and I want to get the biggest draw area, the frack part that we can get. Incredible. Any science that revolves around fracking and beer, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, well, it, you've it, got it, our I, attention you know, <laughs> years, years before, um, that, you know, when I was going through the flow dynamics of that, I'm literally watching a commercial years later and I see them talk about the, the beer can being designed to help the beer have less flow. And I'm just like, wow, like we a got physicist style, designing a beer can, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> totally in, right? yeah. but that's literally the physics between fluid dynamics and flow is how what we designed the catheter so we made it where you can get a good quality out look basically what all this comes you guys laugh at me all the time because i try to simplify stuff but i still use a million words to do it you do okay, but yeah, but, perfect. yeah. So, <laughs> and that's but, perfect yeah but with bone marrow catheter it was about ease and quality yeah if you don't have quality allograft there's no reason to take it if it's not easy there's no you have to be dying to use it mm -hmm. but if you can make it where you it's easy to draw it's less morbid and then you can still get a quality graph the, then that's still the basis of most biologic healing is that cell. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was everything on bone marrow aspirate concentrate from Dr. McKenna and Michael. And I think that's going to be a wrap for this episode.